This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. I wanted to start off this podcast by saying that we will get through this. You know, my, my heart aches for anyone out there who has lost a loved one to the coronavirus, anyone who has to isolate themselves from their family because they tested positive, and really to anyone whose life has been turned upside down, but we will get through this. My wife and I are friends with many healthcare workers. My wife actually happens to be a registered nurse herself, and fortunately for us right now, she's on maternity leave taking care of our beautiful baby girl, but not a second goes by that I'm not thinking of every healthcare worker, grocery store attendant, postal service worker, all those who are the backbone that keep our institutions going. So on behalf of my wife and family, thank you, and again, we will get through this. I'm thankful that I get to do this for a living and bring to you the best content that I can and sharing the stories and strategies from individuals who are some of the best and brightest minds on the planet and in the investing world. Hopefully this episode, previous episodes, and any episodes thereafter bring you some knowledge and tools to help you along your investing journey. I'm thankful for your patronage and continued support, and together we will get through this. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast, I spoke with Dave Waters, the CEO of Alluvial Capital Management. I got to tell you, this episode has been a long time coming as uh, I, I've been a fan of Dave's for a while and he's one of the leading voices in our microcap community. Dave gained notoriety from his popular blog, OTC Adventures, and has since launched his own fund, Alluvial Capital Management. I had a great time chatting with him and I think you'll enjoy all the anecdotes and words of wisdom you're about to hear. And I also just want to be clear that Dave and I spoke prior to the, uh, the COVID-19 outbreak and pandemic. Uh, or officially being labeled as a pandemic, uh, which is why we don't mention it at all during our conversation. So thank you again for tuning in to episode 112 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my interview with Dave Waters. This is Robert Kraft, and I'm your host on the Planet Microcap podcast, and with me today is someone who I've followed for a very long time. It, it seems like we you know, look, don't, don't base it on what you see, you know, in appearance right now, but, you know, I think we've both been in the game now for a few years, but uh, my guest today is Dave Waters. He is the founder of Alluvial Capital and also the author of otcadventures.com. Dave, welcome to the Planet Microcap podcast. Thank you for, uh, it's great to finally have you on here. Yeah, thanks a lot. Super excited about it. Hell yeah. No, I'm, I'm just stoked that you, uh, you had the time to, uh, to join us today. So, you know, for those who may not have, have read OTC Adventures or, or now know about Alluvial Capital, you know, let, let's actually even before that, I, I just want to know, like, what, what got you interested in the wide world of investing? Let's, let's start there. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it really goes back a long way for me, probably, I mean, 20 years. I mean, I'm not, a, I'm 34. I've, still fairly new in this business, but I remember being a, a young teenager. It was actually around the time of the internet bubble when I started looking at the newspaper and thinking, what is this Dow Jones? What is this S&P 500? And uh, all I knew was this thing seems to get more and more valuable every day. Uh, and it just so happened that at the same time, my dad's company that he worked for his whole life uh, did an IPO, uh, UPS. And they went up like 35% on day one. And of course, he was thrilled and changed his life. And I thought, well, this is pretty amazing. Like people can invest. I mean, I come from a pretty rural, pretty blue collar community and didn't really know anyone who had a stock portfolio or anything other than maybe a, a pension. And But the idea that you could take money you had and buy stuff and just wait around and it would become a lot more valuable really, really quickly. Well, that was really attractive. And then, of course, as we all know, things went sour pretty fast. And it turns out there's a lot more to it than just buying whatever, and it doubles or triples in a couple of weeks. But I, I kind of had the bug, even at a young age. And I started reading the – started just watching stuff in the newspaper and going to, like, Nasdaq.com every day with my dial-up internet connection. And 
I, it was just really, really interesting. So uh, yeah, I had the bug pretty early on. Nice. I mean, what what was your what were you looking at early on? I mean, were you were you uh, doing like the like the fantasy stock portfolios that I mean, I, I used to do some of those back in the day. I remember, but I mean, what what was were you actually going in and putting you know hard earned dollars into the market to learn, or were you still kind of like I want to learn more about the game and then I'll start investing once I feel like I'm more comfortable. <laughs> Yeah, well, I didn't really have any hard-earned dollars when I was a teenager, and so if I was just uh, sort of waiting and watching, and at first I was literally just looking at a chart and thinking, oh, it's going up and to the right, this must be good stock, and we put, if I had money, I would put it there. It wasn't until I was about halfway through college, hence a little bit of money from a summer job, that I actually got a brokerage account at Scott Trade, I think, and started buying stuff, and promptly lost all my money, because I had not a clue what I was doing, but... But, but I was learning a little by little, and I studied finance, and uh, my first job was at a, was in a wealth management division at a bank, and learned more and more, did the CFA, and uh, it started becoming a bit wiser and getting some experience under my belt, And but like most people, I still was just kind of stumbling in the dark until I actually started to read serious materials about investing, and uh, particularly value investing, and, and, and that's when I started to apply myself more seriously and thought, you know what, this is... This is the career for me. I want this to be what I do. Uh, and not just because it's fun or it's, it's lucrative or it can be. Really, it became sort of an obsession. Uh, I don't know people, I don't know too many people in this industry who really, really build something and succeed without devoting themselves almost entirely to it. And uh, I started doing that in my early 20s. So what was that reading material that like that just turned you? You know, you said you're investing and you lost all your money <laughs> because you didn't know what you were doing. So like, what was that one book or or paper? Or, you know, who, who knows Warren Buffett uh, uh, investor yeah. letter? You know, what what was that one thing that that turned it for you? Yeah, I guess it was a, a little book I picked up. I think at a thrift store or something. And when I was in college, it's called What Works on Wall Street by by James O'Shaughnessy. Yep. Uh, and those guys are pretty active in, in the game still. And uh, and I started, it was kind of a revelation to me, like, wait a minute, not, you can not only just invest and make money, but if you focus your efforts on a particular part of the stock market, you, you kind of turn the odds in your favor a little bit. And, and that just happens to be historically anyway, uh, the small companies, the, the less liquid companies and the value companies, uh, there's a number of ways to measure that. But I thought, okay, uh, this, this kind of makes sense. Uh, you know, I, here I am sitting here, I'm, I was maybe 25, 26. I have a 30, 40, 50 year time horizon if I'm lucky. Uh, I, I can handle the volatility. Uh, I think I will tilt my portfolio in this direction and start doing, doing my own research and, and hopefully it'll work out well for me. And turns out that just jived really, really well with my own personal interest. Uh, I've always been the kind of guy who enjoys a treasure hunt. And so, I mean, I spent a lot of time in my like, hipster years digging around for vinyl and stuff like that in, in, in thrift stores. And, and so just the idea that I could spend time looking in the sort of the obscure uh, discount bin of the market for, uh, for, uh, for gems really appealed to me. And so I started doing that. I, look, man, once a hipster, always a hipster, okay? <laughs> I, I'm sure you're still going to and getting that vinyl. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so then I got to ask, you know, what, what then inspired, cause we're going to get to your investing strategy soon sure, sure. because I, I, I mean, it's very, very interesting. You know, I've had a few people on here that have very, have a similar style and I'm curious to how you attack it. But, you know, I, I really, I really also want to know is, you know, what inspired you to then start OTC adventures and then eventually alluvial capital? Yeah, for sure. So, so like I mentioned, I was working in the, uh, the, the wealth management division of a bank. Uh, at that point, it was uh, Bank New York Mellon uh, back at Pittsburgh, which is the area I'm from. And it was okay. I mean, they were and still are like a really, really sleepy trust bank. I mean, it's the kind of place you go if you're worth several million dollars. And you don't really care how much you grow your wealth, but you don't want to lose money. And they were good at that, but it certainly wasn't a place for anyone with a lot of ambition or any kind of entrepreneurial uh, bent. And so I started looking for my way out. I saw what my career would be if I stayed there, which is just entertaining clients four or five nights a week and, and hugging the benchmark. And uh, not for me. I, I could easily find myself 20 years down the road and frustrated and no thanks. And at the same time, I, I said to myself, okay, look, here you are in Pittsburgh, cool city, but not exactly on the financial capital of the world. 
no real, uh, went to an obscure little college, was not an academic standout in any way, no amazing banking internships under my belt. If I were to get hired at a hedge fund or anything like that, my only hope is to create my own research and publish it. And if it's decent, somebody will like it and they'll give me a shot. Uh, lucky me, at the time, uh, the internet, um, the world of Seeking Alpha was pretty brand new and there were all these investing blogs that were brand new. There just wasn't a lot of good quality commentary uh, on stocks. And so there was a market for that. And I told myself, if I start a blog, um, even if nobody reads it at first, if I publish good stuff and my ideas are unique and, and ultimately they, on average, work, I'll get attention. And that's exactly what happened. I started writing in 2012 and uh, I think I was just super excited when I had like 50 subscribe readers after six months. And, and now I have a few thousand and I don't even write as much as I used to. I'm just busier these days. But it was really, really thrilling to see people actually enjoy what I was writing. And almost without fail, after I profiled a company, I would get an email from someone saying, I'm, I'm, I'm the second or third largest shareholder in this company. I, I love it. How on, earth, how on earth did you find it? And we get into a good conversation and they'd often become uh, mentors or connect me to other people they thought I should know. And it was a really amazing way to network. And so I kept on doing that uh, in my nights and weekends. And okay, probably on a slow afternoon at work now and then, uh, writing these blog posts. And uh, it got attention and it was a great way to get launched. Mm -hmm. No, I, I, I love that approach. I mean, you know, my, my friend Brandon Mackey started a very similar way. I know Nate Tobik started a very similar way. Sure, it's a good you friend know. of mine. Yeah, like these, I mean, they, you guys are all such good writers and put out, it, it's not just even really the quality of ideas, it's mm -hmm. the way in which you go about expressing your ideas, which yes. was revolutionary at the time, I think. I think so. It, it was just so accessible compared to these sell side Wall Street reports, which were really, really hard to access if you were just a regular retail investor. and. Yeah, uh, Nate's blog was a big inspiration for me. It, it was funny. I remember reading Oddball Stocks, still do. And I sent Nate an email. I was like, I love your stuff. You know, if you're ever in, in Pittsburgh, I'd love to buy you a beer or a coffee, whatever. And it turned out he lived like three miles yeah, from me. In... So, <laughs> I was say, he's, so he's a head guy, too. <laughs> That's too funny. So, yeah. so then, so then from, I mean, I'm just assuming, you know, you were, you did pretty well. To get to the point where you then felt confidence to start Alluvial Capital. Am I yes. on the right track there? Exactly. What happened was I'd get emails from people saying, I like your ideas. No one else there is doing exactly this. Uh, do you manage any capital yourself? And I'd have to say, you know, I, I don't. I work for a large bank. I can't compete against my employer. And uh, the CFA institute would not like that. And if they, uh, well, they'd say, if you ever go off on your own, uh, let me know. I'll sign up. Uh, and so... There I was, I was 29, I guess, and didn't really have a lot of day-to-day -day responsibilities of single, living in a small apartment, no kids. And had some savings and I thought, well, this is the time to go for it. Uh, I'll start up an RIA. If it gets traction and it grows, that's fantastic. If not, well, at least I tried and uh, I won't regret not. And I'll just go back to work somewhere else. But thankfully, uh, I started in, I guess, February of 2014 with about six clients and less than two million under management and thankfully the returns were good from the get-go and i got a lot of good referrals and here we are hard to believe it's six years later but uh we we've grown and, and done well and, it, and it's still as much fun as it was from the beginning very cool so now to dig into your actual the strategy itself that that got yeah. you to where you are today you know so I, I had to go back to where it started to your very first <laughs> blog post where you said that your task and i quote excuse me your task on OTC Adventures is to find and profile the most intriguing investment opportunities I can find among the ranks of the market's most neglected and suspected companies, OTC, BB, and Pink Sheets stocks. So, yeah. you know, uh, we I kind of we kind of already went through what what really drew you here. You know, so so what was your approach, or what is your approach then to finding the quality ideas in this realm? Sure. Sure, it's evolved a little bit over time, but I think the bedrock has always just been the old brute force, uh, start with the A's approach. Uh, I don't know a better way to find value sometimes because oftentimes the, the stuff we find that we like, it doesn't screen well or sometimes the financials aren't even available on, on the SEC or what have you. And so there's really no shortcut other than going 
one by one through a list of stocks and checking out the financials and, and drawing conclusions about the company. And, and that was our goal from the very beginning. And I have to say that back in 2012, the, the OTC markets were just unbelievably, uh, it was a target-rich atmosphere. I couldn't go through a list of 100 stocks without finding four or five. They were just screamingly cheap. I mean, stuff that was trading at 50% of book value and five times earnings with net cash on the balance sheet. And what had happened was investors were just so scarred and stunned by the financial crisis and the market crash, there was just very little liquidity and nobody was interested in putting their putting their neck out on any of these uh, investments. And so they were just sitting there and incredibly cheap. And over the next couple of years, they were bid up and a lot of them were taken out, uh, unfortunately, too early for, for many of them. But it, it was just really, really easy. And it's gotten tougher. I mean, with the markets on this incredible run, uh, I was gonna say. Day, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, you have to look a little bit harder than you used to. But I still think for the, the truly committed investor who wants to find ideas that are just out of consensus and, um, before the market finds them, you, you just have to go company by company. It's, it's not always fun. It can get a little boring, but you'll find gold if you just keep going. I was going to say, what, what it, you know, you said it's just sheer brute force of will <laughs> to really find some of these. Yeah. I mean, so what exactly was that brute force of will that you would do? I mean, would you literally just A to Z here? Because as you said, screening for some of these names, they just, they won't even show up because you know, you're. I mean, you're looking at financials. Maybe the last one that was publicly available is like, right? Just if it were today, like back in 2017. You know, mm -hmm. so I mean, how did you? What was your process? Literally A to Z, going through each one. Well, what I started with doing is I, I created my own sort of proprietary database where I, I I did like a lot of some people do, where I literally downloaded the entire symbol file from OTCMarkets.com, and there's something like 9,000 securities on there, and some of them, though, you can get rid of pretty immediately. The share price is 0. 0.00001 right. cent, and there's no revenue or, yeah, there's a lot of garbage that you can discard pretty quickly. But after going through that, I was left with about one or 2,000, uh, somewhere in there, names that were actually real businesses, not saying they were attractive investments, but they had a, a legitimate operation. And from there, it was just a matter of going through the financial statements and think, thinking, okay, you know, here's a company with real revenue and actual profits, and they have cash flow and assets. And this is a, they have a product or a service that's valuable and will likely remain valuable. And you can just, and so what I managed to do was whittle my initial list from several thousand down to 400 or 500 names that I would just keep tabs on. I try to revisit each symbol at least once a month, update the valuation if they had a new quarterly come out or some kind of press release that was material for them. Also, I made another list of about 600 community banks, uh, which was another. So, and this was rather time consuming. I mean, keeping tabs on a thousand stocks is pretty ambitious. Uh, but I pretty quickly realized you just, as you do this, you get faster and faster and you come faster and quicker at pointing out or recognizing what's what's bogus and what's actually legit. And so you end up concentrating on the stocks that are actually valuable. And, and that's where a lot of my best ideas came from early on. It's just whittling down the list to what was the most legit and at that time, what was the cheapest. Got it. So then what was your criteria? What I, I'm, I'm going to ask you later, you know, how it's changed, but I'm, Maybe at that time, you know, what was your criteria then for a potential new investment? And then yeah, let's get into yeah. it. You know, how, how has that changed over the years? Sure. I'd say that at the very beginning, my, my approach was pretty heavily quantitative. Uh, at the time, I was looking for, oh, mid-single-digit normalized earnings price to ratios, uh, just normalizing for one-time items. If I could buy something, a legitimate operation at five or six times normalized earnings, I had a pretty good odds of succeeding with that investment. I mean, I also wanted a good balance sheet. I wanted repeatable free cash flow. I wanted growth. Uh, growth, of course, is a good thing. Uh, but I wanted profitable growth, not just revenue for the sake of revenue. And so I wanted to see a trend of increasing margins and and just a little bit beyond that, I just wanted to see a business where it seemed like the management was well incentivized. They were big inside. They were big owners of the stock themselves. They paid themselves reasonably, and they just made they did smart things. I think if you can just avoid management that does stupid things, you will rule out a lot of errors and, and save yourself a lot of heartache and headache. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. So, so that was my approach at the beginning. And, and frankly, like I said, it worked really well because the markets were just so, so cheap back then. Um, it, my process has evolved over time to be much more heavily qualitative. And a lot of that is because the simple, very obvious statistical value has sort of evaporated from the markets, even the markets I look at, which don't get a lot of the ETF and mutual fund flows. They've still been bid up quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And so these days, I, I spend much more time assessing business models, evaluating competitive position, um, really sort of digging into the the qualification and the motivation and, and of the management team because, frankly, I just lost too much money investing in companies where they looked fantastic but all the value was ending up in management's pocket or was just being obliterated in one terrible decision they made. And so these days I spend a lot more time filtering, I guess, uh, for, for quality. Um, that's not to say I only invest in the so-called compounders. There are very, very cheap stocks out there where the business isn't the most wonderful thing in the world, but nonetheless, they make money and they reinvest successfully in its legitimate operation. But, but these days, I spend a lot more time thinking about businesses and, and less time focusing on the, the numbers and on the financial statements and, and the ratios. That was going to be my follow-up question because, as you said, you know, especially in the arena that you look in in some of these dark illiquid stocks i mean mm-hmm. they've just been bid up or just straight up taken out over the last yeah. couple of years you know with just the valuations kind of going nuts mm-hmm. not, not maybe not it's february 24th so maybe not today but uh <laughs> but but you know you as you said valuations are just you know going up and up so mm-hmm. how then did you develop that skill to evaluate management better because it sounds like really you're you're very focused on the quantitative side you know mm-hmm. what did you do to help yourself get there where you felt more comfortable evaluating all right this is good management they're good capital allocators mm-hmm. um you know running the business well you know talk a little about that sure uh i'd say i learned most of it the hard way uh, i don't know some lessons you just have to learn by straight up losing money or investing in something that is you thought was X and it turns out it's it's Y and Y is really, really bad and not what you wanted to invest in. I'd say that I, it's just battle scars. I mean, I had several investments where uh, management turned out to be dishonest or conflicted or just uh, unfocused. And so honestly, I spend more time talking to management than I used to. Now, I'm still not at the school that says, you know, you have to sit down with management and you have to find out, uh, you know, what their birthday is and their favorite color and memorize their anniversary and how many kids they have. That's Honestly, I think you can get a little bit too emotionally involved that way, and it's hard to change your mind if you need to. But but it does matter who's running your company, especially at the small end of the, uh, of the market capitalization scale. A lot of the times these these people in charge are, are maybe not as professional and as professionalized as they would be for the S&P 500. doesn't mean they're stupid or incompetent at all. But what I find that the, the culture coming from the top has a much larger effect on these small companies that have maybe as few as five or ten employees up to a couple hundred compared to a company that has several thousand. They have more of an institutional culture. But I find that just the change in the CEO very much drives the company culture and a small operation. And so it depends a lot uh, who that CEO is and how much you can trust that person. And so I had to learn a lot of hard lessons. I had to lose money. I, I had to see my investment not work out. And, and I had to get more confident uh, in talking to these, these companies. I think my background personally, coming from, like I said, a blue-collar background and uh, feeling like uh, who am I to approach these mighty CEOs and companies? That's not true at all. You're a sh- if you're a shareholder, you're an investor, and you have every right to approach that company and and talk to them. And, and if they won't, well, that says more about them than it does about you. And you may want to focus your investments uh, elsewhere. And so, just learning to realize that hey, I'm an investor. I have rights. I you need to answer my questions because you work for me is an important part of the process. And of course, be nice, be respectful, be a good guy about it. But don't be afraid to to approach the company and ask the questions that you want them to answer. But let me ask you this. I mean, because, you know, again, we're dealing in some some of these companies, darker liquid stocks, some of them, most of the time, probably just don't even want to be public <laughs> to begin with. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. what if it's a company that you're like, oh, man, this checks all my boxes. I mm-hmm. want to talk to management, but man- man- management's just literally like, I don't care to talk to you. I'm just running my business. Let me just... Leave me alone. You know, have you come across a few of those situations? 
I have. Um, maybe for me years ago, it was, well, okay, I'm just a little investor. They don't want to talk to me. Fine. They're running the business and okay, I'll, I'll buy some shares anyway. These days, I don't, that doesn't work for me anymore. Uh, I think if you are a public company, whether you want to be or not, you have an obligation to talk to investors who approach you. If you don't want to be public, great. Buy out your shares. Go private. But don't act like you're a private company if you have shares that are publicly traded, even if you're not an SEC reporter. And so these days, if I approach a company and I get radio silence or I get, you know, here, sign this NDA or or just uh, any kind of hostility or secrecy or paranoia from management, you know, I do get that. That's almost always a pass. Uh, the very Maybe the very limited exception is that I look at the history of the company and they really do have an excellent history of running the business well and treating shareholders fairly, I might just conclude, okay, they're just publicity shy or they just really are that busy making deals and running the business and maybe I can overlook it. But it, they truly have to have an exceptional track record and a history of, of treating their shareholders, uh, treating them well and, and not self-dealing. But that's those companies are really rare. Gotcha. So, you know, I really also wanted to, you know, I asked, you know, how your strategy has changed over the years. And one of my main questions really was because, you know, you went from being your own individual investor to now, you know, running, running a fund at Alluvial Capital. And, and I've, I've, I've interviewed a couple uh, individual investors that play in the same arena as you, you know, from Dan Shum, from No Name Stocks, Doug Moan, yep. from No Called Strikes. And many others, I'm sure. And and so, you know, for you, what would you say is the biggest difference going from an individual investor to now run, running a fund now focused in this? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming off the bat, getting a lot more calls back. <laughs> yeah, that does help uh, a little <laughs> bit of clout. It does give you for better or for worse. Uh, that's true. I would say that Honestly, managing other people's money is a, is very, very, very different than managing just your own personal capital. Uh, you feel the pressure. I mean, I take it very seriously. I know that the the investors who invested in, with Alluvio, this is people's hard-earned money that they sometimes is the result of years of careful saving and investing and living below their means and and this uh, and so it's it's a very it's a sacred trust really to take care of that and so take it very very seriously and and honestly I really really feel it if I if I ended up making an investment that I think actually was not the greatest choice or, or I made a mistake uh, which is why you try to make fewer and fewer of those every day but. It's tough sometimes if you did all your homework on an investment and you're really, really confident in it and you buy it and it, the first thing it does is drop 25% or 30%, that, that's really tough. That's a, that, that can seriously rock your confidence. And so I think it's taken me years to build up a, my, my skills and sort of coping with the, the emotionality that, uh, that can occur in investing. I mean, you invest your own money and you lose it temporarily, you hope. You feel bad. You feel dumb. But in the end, it was your decision. It was your money. You're the only one who's affected by that. That's not the case when you transition to managing other people's money as well. And so I've had to develop uh, – I've had to – well, you really have to do your homework. I've had to develop more confidence, my skills. I've had to develop the ability to roll with the punches, the market. If the market's just beating me up like it does now and then for everyone. But that's that's the biggest thing about it. And I, I answer to higher authorities, which are our clients and limited partners these days. And you can never forget that. But it's been wonderful, but it's, it's hard. I was going to say, I mean, it must also be harder in terms of, uh, you know, position sizing too. You know, you're looking at some of these dark liquid stocks, you're like, okay, this thing basically is trading by appointment at this point. And, mm -hmm. you know, I have a big block of shares that I'm looking to get into. And even if it's just a regular OTC company that even might be fully reporting, that's still very difficult to then size into. So can you talk about your strategy there a little bit? Oh, totally. Yeah, that's another thing I was about to say is I actually think, and Alluvio has about $40 million under management right now, which still makes us a very small firm in the scheme of things, but is certainly quite a lot more than we were managing just a few years ago, and certainly far magnitude larger than my personal portfolio was when I was just running that. And these days, honestly, there are some stocks that, that Alluvio cannot invest in because they're just too small. I actually think that's a pretty large advantage. If you're someone who, who, who for in the context of, of their portfolio where 5000 or $10,000 is a major part of the portfolio, that's an advantage because you can truly buy the smallest, cheapest, most illiquid stuff 
and, and you can do very well where for even a small fund like alluvial that's no longer a possibility really and so uh, i hope people take full advantage of that uh, but at the same time, yes, as we've gotten larger, we've had to think much more about the sort of stocks that we want to purchase. And the biggest thing has to be, I have to know before we buy a stock, is this something I'm going to be okay with holding if it takes several years for my thesis to play out? And it, I have to be okay with that. Uh, if I buy it and six months later, I change my mind, well, it, it can be hard to get out. Because uh, we might own, end up owning two, three, four percent of of the company, and that might be fifteen percent of the free float if the company is controlled by its insiders or, or or family. And so, we spend a lot more time thinking about what do we do if things don't go how we want before we ever get into a stock. It wasn't a big deal when I was an individual investor. It's like, okay, I'll buy five thousand dollars of that if I'm if I just decided I wanted to sell it. Okay, boom, it's done. It took one day. No longer. It could take months to, to fully sell out of something we no longer want to hold now. And so that's even at a small, a small firm like ours, we're, I mean, the ships in the ocean metaphor is overdone, but we're no longer a canoe. We're more like a, like a yacht. And we're still not the battleship or the super carrier that Vanguard is, but it's harder to turn around than it used to be. And so we have to spend more time thinking about position sizing and what do we want to get into versus not even try it because it might be too small. So then I, I have to ask you this question too. I asked this to Dan because uh, I, I'm just very interested. You know, um, when you're looking at some of these these companies that, that are in your wheelhouse, I mean, what, what's some of the hair that you are comfortable with on these companies? Yeah, that's a good question because, as you well know, and as Dan well knows, there are a lot of them that have some hair, at the, especially this level. Uh, I'd say most of them. <laughs> they don't get the same kind of scrutiny from institutional investors or uh, really anyone as some of the larger companies do. And I think sometimes you'll see you'll see uh, related party transactions uh, at all these companies where the company is in some way contract, contracting with management or their shareholders for certain services. Uh, and some of those are okay with me and some of them are not. I mean, sometimes you'll see, okay, the company is paying a law firm to do its, uh, just to handle its legal businesses. And it turns out the controlling shareholder is a partner in that law firm or something. That's not really a big deal to me. And in fact, they might even end up saving money that way, but it still has to be disclosed because it's a related party transaction. A lot of manufacturing or distribution firms, you see that they're actually leasing a warehouse or something from the shareholder or management, and that's generally okay with me too. They, as long as they're paying a reasonable rate, and you can sort of check that by checking the local comparables in the commercial market for there, and that doesn't bother me too much. Uh, on the other hand, I don't like seeing the company pay for the management's country club membership or. It's egregious how many small companies are chartering planes and jets for their for their management as well, which is just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, I don't like to see them paying for perks. Uh, you'll, and you'll see a lot of microcap and liquid management that's actually getting paid better than their large cap uh, counterparts, and that's that really rubs me the wrong way. I mean, if you want to treat yourself like a family business, you should be a family business and not have outside shareholders uh, because it's you're not upholding your fiduciary duty that way. But, but yeah, uh, I mean, each case is different uh, and every investor is going to have to figure out what they're okay with and what they're not. But uh, I don't like anything that suggests the, the shareholders or management is using the company as a personal wealth transfer device or piggy bank is, is sort of a, a red line for me. I don't, I don't like that at all. My next follow-up question then to you, and, and this is kind of projecting a little bit. So, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, there's, I guess there's no wrong answer here, but you know, it's, it sounds like you really got your start during this crazy bull market from that <laughs> 2012 time and, you know, to our, well, today's obviously not their best day, but, um, you know, still to the, it's still rocking mm -hmm. bull market now. I mean, yeah. have you given thought to how your strategy will work? And, you know, these are all cyclical. We all know that eventually there's going to be a downturn in the market. Have you thought about how your investing approach will shift or, or how you might go about, you know, looking at potential new ideas once that down market does come? Absolutely. Uh, I think you're right. It, it was a lot of investors have been investing with the wind at their back for most of the last decade. And 
feels great. I mean, everyone enjoys it when it's a fairly uh, smooth ride, but we know that doesn't last forever. And so I do think about that in terms of portfolio construction and what should we be doing now in the good times to prepare for the inevitable uh, rocky times whenever those do arrive. Maybe it's now, maybe it's six months, maybe it's three years or five, who knows? Anything could happen, but I think our greater focus on quality will serve us well. Um, like I said, uh, just we, we also put a lot more emphasis on balance sheet strength than, than we were just a couple years ago. Uh, frankly, got burned a little bit on a couple of companies that had more debt than they should have and uh, took it on the chin when their individual industries uh, ran into some issues. And so I think today, though, our portfolios are probably two thirds companies that have net cash on the balance sheet. And I think that'll serve us well for whenever the whenever a downturn arrives. Uh, there's Because there's optionality in that. I mean, companies can always buy back cheap stock or, or go out and buy purchase a competitor opportunistically and and they don't have to worry about uh refinancing i think that if you have a company that can fund itself internally and chooses to it's not a bad time for them to do that i'm a little wary of companies with exceptions but if a company is going out and making massive uh capital outlays now um, my first question is well, why don't you do this a few years ago uh so you could set yourself up well today but is this the really the best time to get a little bit out of your skis in terms of your balance sheet or, um, and I mean, who knows, but I just, I prefer companies that have to take the longer term view and have a balance sheet that can last them through whatever happens next. Uh, but, but yeah, we, but we, I'm spending more time than I used to thinking about, okay, how am I positioning myself in the next downturn? And, uh, and sometimes that can be a bit frustrating if you're investing in defensive companies or, Companies that have a solid balance sheet and they're just kind of hanging out there or maybe going up just a little bit when the market flies. And you see all these fast gunning, um, aggressive companies going up 20, 30 percent. And it can be a little frustrating to see your stuff just sit there. But I think you have to stick to your process and insist on quality and you'll make it through. So I have to ask, and and you know, as I told you before, before we press play, you know, I'm not going to ask about individual stocks, but what sectors have been interesting for you that that really have been fitting your thesis recently? Yeah, um, well, I'm pretty lonely in this, but we've been big investors in rural telecom, actually. Uh, when I think you pitch any stock in the rural telecom segment to any kind of investor, and their first question is going to be, why would you do that? There's no growth there. These companies are dinosaurs. I mean, who has a landline anymore? And, and I would say, uh, yes, that's absolutely true. People are ditching their landlines. But what I think a lot of people don't realize is that these rural broadband, oh, I, I tell myself there, they're really not rural telecoms anymore. These are rural broadband providers. Mm -hmm. uh, the FCC has changed how it subsidizes these companies. And rather than essentially paying them to provide landlines to rural areas and uh, mountaintops and valleys and Minnesota and West Virginia and everywhere else, the FCC is now very generously subsidizing these companies to build fiber optic networks. And those fiber optic networks are what will enable these companies to sign up new customers and give them broadband access, most of them for the first time ever, and really ensure that these companies are still viable 30, 40 years from now when no one has a landline, but everyone still needs more and better broadband service than ever. And so we've done very, very well in that area by seeing the market slowly wake up to the fact that these really aren't melting ice cubes. These are businesses in transition. Uh, a lot of them have strong balance sheets. And, and that's another thing. The, the major uh, large cap rural telcos like Frontier and CenturyLink and uh, Windstream have all just been obliterated. Uh, and the reasons are they have way too much debt. And they're operating in areas where they're competing against Charter Communications and Verizon and Comcast, and that's a very difficult battle to win. However, if you invest in some of these rural telcos, they're the only game in town. There's no one else in their market rolling out fiber. There's customers can have internet from them or no internet. And that's an easy choice for, for most customers to make. And, and so they've done very, very well. And, and I think this is the kind of business that's pretty resistant to a recession as well, because you can stop going out to eat at a restaurant, you can stop doing whatever, but you still need that internet connection to entertain yourself or it's cheap entertainment or, geez, to apply for jobs uh, these days. I mean, good luck getting a job without an email address and probably an online application. So I like those a lot. No, so true. I mean, you also hear literally every 
uh, candidate for president talking about how they want to bring internet to, you know, all these different rural communities that yes. still don't have it. So, I mean, there's, it sounds like there's an opportunity there. It's been a good market for us. And I think there's more upside there. Um, yeah, I guess honestly, more so than industries, we've been finding uh, just market niches that have gone unexplored. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we do a lot of international. Uh, I think that's a differentiator for Luvio as well. We don't, we don't confine ourselves to the U S and Canada. I think, if you're willing to look at Europe and Asia and places like that, you have to be even more careful. You have to insist on that margin of safety and really do your due diligence. But those markets have just as inefficient as U.S. micro and illiquid markets can be. It's, it's so much worse overseas. You find companies that are just totally neglected and no one knows about them. And we've done well investing. I think one of our recent areas where we found a lot of promise was something we did not expect at all is the 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 ipo market in italy for small companies uh it's really really intriguing so the italian government uh, a couple years ago changed some laws that made it very attractive all of a sudden for small and medium-sized businesses to do an ipo they did a major tax credit for ipo expenses and because italian so this Italian stock market is kind of undeveloped. It, there's a lot of very kind large of. firms. Yeah, but for whatever reason, <laughs> most of the small companies in Italy are still family-owned, and the government right. wants them to list, which makes sense. And so compared to like the U.S. IPO market, it's nearly always, well, loss-making firms or firms that already have several hundred million in revenue because before that they're owned by private equity or venture capital. Then finally they list once their hyper-growth slows down. Not the case in Italy. Uh, there's not a lot of private equity, not a lot of venture capital. There's some. But these companies IPO, and they sometimes they sell as little as five million uh, worth of stock, which is just insane. And so you know these IPOs are not being bought up by big banks. I and mean, what big bank wants to put in for a half million uh, euro of some little family-owned company? But we've done really, really well. Um, one of our best successes so far, and it is a company we own called Intred, is a fiber optic network operator in northern Italy, and it went public at like three and a half to four times EBITDA, which is just absolutely wild for a good company with lots of growth potential and a good balance sheet, and and there's others too, but that's one that's been a lot of fun for us, and who knew? If you told me a year ago that, hey, you should really check out the Italian IPO market, I'd be like, are you serious? But it turned out to be a fruitful area for us. And so we're always looking for what is that next market niche that no one's really looking at and there's a lot of potential. I was going to say, how the hell, I mean, how did you find it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, we're always looking for, for new markets. We're always checking out the various level or the various uh, categories of, because of every market. Because a lot of markets, just like the U.S., there's, you know, there's the listed company, the NYSE and NASDAQ. And below that, there's uh, OTC stuff. It's the same way in Europe. They have their their premier list, and below that is the alternative access market. And sometimes the lower tiers don't get a lot of attention, and so that's where we've been having fun. I should introduce you to uh, one of my one of the guests I've had on here, Tom Thomas Backrack from PFH. He, he's got stories for days when it comes to investing in international microcaps. So oh yeah, love it, to talk to him. Uh, it's it's too good. So very recently, actually, Ian put out a tweet when he was talking about the focus on niche markets. You know, that's where true really your wealth develops more or less yeah. you know when when you can find companies that are really building out their you know maybe they have their five i think it was i think he was talking about how uh you know finding companies in those niche markets that are making five million in revenues you want to find those that can grow that to 50 million and that's mm-hmm. really your market opportunity i mean is that where you i mean i'm sure you would agree with those sentiments Oh, for sure. Um, I do think investors should be a little bit suspicious of their own ability uh, to, to project that kind of revenue growth. Because, I mean, a business going 10x in revenue, that's a big deal. And mm-hmm. it's awesome if you can find a business like that. But I don't think anyone should ignore businesses that won't do 10x but can do grow their revenue by 50% in three years. Those businesses can do exceptionally well for you as well. So I do think there are some microcap investors who are really only interested in the kind of business that can be 10 or 20 or 100 times larger a decade from now. That's awesome. Um, we do a little bit of that, but but I think there's also plenty of potential businesses that are just going to have a moderate growth rate, but do smart things with their cash and, and just operate their business well and are just good operators. I think you can make money on those, on those too. It doesn't have to be 
well, you're going to you're going to lose everything, or you're going to make a hundred times your money. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of space in between for a company that can make you fifteen to twenty percent a year for a decade. You'll make a lot of money that way. Gotcha. All right, so I wanted to move on to a topic that I, I talked with Dan about, as well as with Carmel Colson from OTC Markets, and this has to do with uh, uh, back in I believe it was. I think it was August or September, maybe in October, it was late last year, where um, SEC put out their proposal about uh, halting trading in dark stocks. You know, so I really, I really wanted to get your opinion on the matter. Well, I think it's a terrible idea. I'm sure that's not a surprise. <laughs> not, not a surprise. <laughs> I do understand the. Uh, I, I know what they're going for, and I do think the goal of protecting retail investors from. Pump and dumps is, is a very, uh, it's a noble goal, but it's being instituted all wrong. I, I will say that the sort of investments that uh, a very uh, dedicated sort of traditional value investor is making in microcap and illiquid stuff and dark companies is, is not the kind of stock that's going to be subject to any kind of pump and dump or manipulation. Um, that tends to be shells and companies that are that call themselves like blockchain, cannabis, 3D printing, uh, space exploration, things like that. Uh, it's very, very obvious what the true garbage companies are, and those are the ones that get pumped by boiler room operations. And it's not the it's not the family owned manufacturer that's been trading OTC for thirty years, or or the community bank, or things like that. And I think my hope is, and I have a little bit of optimism, not too much, but based on uh, the comments that OTC Markets made, I do hope that the SEC finds a way to differentiate between. Companies that are legitimate operations and just happen to be uh, dark companies versus company, uh, stocks that do have high potential for manipulation or fraud. And I hope they find a way to, to divide those, whether it's based on their share price or, or some kind of asset test uh, that the company has, or even the formation of an, an, of an expert market that OTC markets recommend, that I'd be okay with that as well. That if you could demonstrate some level of financial sophistication, then, then you're okay to trade these things. Uh, it'll be a real tragedy. If uh, some of these great companies are just almost totally untradeable in public markets, uh, following following a rule change, uh, investors will be hurt to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. I think that's terribly unfortunate, but we just, I guess, have to wait and see at this point. Right. I was gonna. I, I literally was just gonna ask if you were to be uh, the next chairman of the SEC, how would you handle it? <laughs> you more or less answer that question. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I would try my hardest to really dial in on the obvious frauds and stocks that really exist for no other reason. <laughs> I always joke, you, if you spend any time looking at stocks over the counter, you'll find a large number of them that they say they have a business, but their real business is issuing stock. Uh, that's the only thing they ever actually do. And I would say that those are the companies you want to focus on, not the companies that have real cash flow and real, real businesses. Gotcha. Those are the ones you can get rid of. For sure. So, so then what, what would you say is the most difficult part of your job now? I mean, I feel like there's so many places we could hit on here from the, you know, uh, some of the companies maybe that you saw six years ago and, and getting bit up like crazy to not managing a fund versus being an indi individual investor. But, you know, yeah. rather than me projecting, I, I think I should just ask, you know, so uh, <laughs> you tell me, you know, what what is what is the most difficult part? I would say that it's really just decide. Well, I mean, every day you take a look at the market, and there is a huge selection of things you can invest in, and you have to say no to almost everything and yes to just a few things. And so the hardest part for me is saying, okay, I have like 50 ideas that I like. Which of those do I invest in, and which of those do I just let pass me by? And it's the whole thing about you don't have to swing at every pitch. And I struggle with that sometimes because I have kind of a hyperactive, hyperactive mind. I'm always looking for new ideas. I feel like I come across new ideas fairly often. And every time I come across an idea, though, I have to say, I have to really sit down and say, okay, I like this idea, but I have to make sure I'm not just excited about it because it's new and shiny. Uh, I have to make sure it's not actually not better than one of my existing ideas. So you have to compare your new ideas versus the things you already own. And the majority of the time, the right decision is to just keep on holding what you already own or buy more of it because you understand that company well, you have experience with it. But I think investors, we're, we're always looking for the new thing. And it's exciting to find a new idea, but you have to be willing to say, okay, 
that's a good idea, but not now, and put it on your watch list. Or just say, it's a great idea, but this thing I already hold is better. And so it's a difficult thing, picking out which of your ideas are the, is the best and what do you think has the best return potential per unit of risk that you're taking on. And you have to let some really good ideas just go floating by. And that's hard. I, I'm the kind of investor, I want to do everything, but I can't. And that's hard. And I really have to tell myself, stick to what you're best at. Well, uh, well- well, is your is your are you is your portfolio relatively more concentrated, or do you happen to have positions in in quite a few stocks? Um, we are concentrated. We're not super concentrated. I mean, I know people who have 30, 40 percent of the portfolio in one stock, and that's not. I don't run that way. Uh, I, I do think it's just. Well, I think it's it's a humility thing. I, I don't believe I can truly know a company so well that I'd be comfortable making it that much of my portfolio. I mean, I could talk to management every day and, and memorize every financial statement for the past 10 years, and there could still be some employee somewhere in the company performing some fraud I wouldn't know about, and they could get hit by anything could happen. I mean, a volcano could open up under a company headquarters tomorrow, and everyone could fall in, and that would be a disaster. And so I think you have to remember that the world is a really unpredictable place and you can do as much as possible to be aware of every risk and incorporate that in your valuation and things can still happen. And so we tend to top out at around 10 to 12 percent of uh, the portfolio at our largest position that we think has great return potential and very, very little downside. And we scale down from there. But typically the top 50 percent of our portfolio is five or six names. And the scale is down from there. And that's a level of concentration and risk I'm comfortable with. So, no, we're probably never going to be the fund that has a year where we do 70 or 80 percent, maybe coming out of a bear market or something. But we're probably also not going to be the fund that falls 30 or 40 or 50 percent just because we like to spread the bets around a little bit. At the same time, I do think there's uh, a lot of wisdom in, in Buffett saying, you know, why would you invest in your 20th best idea compared to putting more funds into your best and so we try to strike the balance. We have meaningful exposure to, uh, to the ideas we think are great, but we also are willing to put a little bit of capital into other ideas that provide some kind of diversification benefit or just a check on our own uh, hubris. <laughs> nice. So then what, what investing experience would you say impacted you the most in your career? Oh, I mean, definitely got to be one of the times that <laughs> – Probably the first significant loss I took after launching Alluvial. Uh, I was super, super hyped up on this company called Awoko Drilling. And I don't own any of it anymore. And that was years and years ago. But uh, I remember it was this company. It was a, They were uh, a Norwegian company that had this really cool – it was just kind of a special situation. They purchased a couple of offshore drilling rigs at a fire sale price from a forced seller refurbished them and now they were leasing them out into a really, really hot market and they kind of committed, they were they were just going to distribute all their free cash flow and, and if you looked just a couple quarters out, they were trading like two times what that free cash flow was going to be. And so I was super, super excited about it and I bought a whole bunch and at first it was amazing. I, I bought it at like 13 or 14 in US dollar equivalents and it went up to 30 or so and it paid like $3 in dividends along the way. I felt like a god. I mean, honestly, I was so excited. It was just my, and this is like the first year managing outside money. I was like, this is easy. Like, here, assets are just going to come rolling in, and you know, we're going to be some hot firm in a couple of years. And, whew, yeah, that's that's not at all what happened. I mean, just at the point where I should have been selling, uh, the, you know, the the offshore uh, market for oil was at its peak, and there were more and more rigs coming into the market, and uh, it would have been a great time to. to uh, or, at least take some profits because it's a cyclical industry, but probably should have been selling. And um, I didn't. And the share price started to slide and slide and slide. And I told myself, oh, you know, things will turn around. This is temporary. They're the, they're the cheap. They have great operators. They're the cheapest of, the, of all their competitors out there. And well, I ended up selling right about right at about break even after dividends and it took about 18 months for the whole thing to happen. So essentially it was dead money for 18 months. And it taught me a lesson that I honestly had to relearn a couple times before it really took. But cyclicals are, are a different creature. Uh, anytime you're investing in a business that doesn't fully control, uh, well, that's a price taker uh, where it gets it gets paid little in, in bad times and it gets paid a lot in good times. Make sure that you're looking past whatever the current market is and you're looking through the full cycle. 
I shouldn't have been saying this company is making all this money. It's a five times earnings. I should have been saying, yeah, they're making a lot of money now, but now they're trading like 12 or 13 times full cycle earnings. And that's a lot for a cyclical like this. And I should have been selling. But that was honestly, it was very, very good for me to have a very a disaster of an investment early on. It really, really taught me to be a lot more cautious and a lot more skeptical of my own knowledge and abilities. And I, I think that's served as well. Hey, look, at least you didn't lose your shirt on it. I mean, you know, <laughs> at the very at least that that's one another silver lining there. Well, that's that's happened after that. But oh, that's how I that's how I did. It's true. <laughs> so so then, you know, what what advice would you have for new investors that are looking to invest in the stock market and not just not just the stock market in general, but also maybe even looking at, you know, some of these small illiquid dark names. Yeah. Um, well, first, let me clarify one thing. I've been saying I and we the whole time, and I use it interchangeably. Uh, Alluvial is a small firm. Uh, it's just, I'm, the, I'm the portfolio manager, but I have a, uh, an assistant named Tom. He's been with me for about a year and a half. He does a great job. So I, I sometimes flip back and forth and confuse people. Like, wait a minute, is it you or is it we? Uh, we'll just say I, but I do have a, a, an assistant who does a great job. Well, look, as, but, long, as, long, as long as you don't call the – I mean, look, you could call yourself the alluvial group. You know, you got more than one. That's true. It's That's like true. For, from Entourage, it's like the Murphy group. It's like it's only it's, you. <laughs> it's technically true, which is, I guess, the best kind of true. Uh, yeah, so, okay, advice for um, – you said like new investors? Yeah, is that new, what you New investors and even yeah. ones that are currently invested in the market right now if you want to kind of give your two cents on what you see, what's going on, especially when it comes to the small liquid dark area. Sure. I would say that hmm, you're going to lose money. And you got to be comfortable with it. And when you do, you can't take it personally. Um, take it personally to the degree that it motivates you to, to learn and avoid making a mistake if you made one. Uh, but losing money isn't always your fault. The market is going to do what it's going to do. But, but I think the important thing to remember is you wake up in the morning, you check in with your stocks, you do it a few times during the day. There's going to be days when you're down and you can't let it get you down. And there's going to be days when you're up and weeks and months as well. And yeah, enjoy it. But remember that it's temporary. And what really matters is the progression of quarters and, and years and decades rather than what happens to you this particular day or week or month. I think as long as you commit yourself to learning more every single day with every investment you make and, and just uh, building on that knowledge, uh, you'll get where you want to go. Uh, I do think, you know, if 10 years from now, you're still making the same mistakes that you made today, maybe full-time investing is not your thing, and which is fine. I mean, everyone has their own skills and talents, but just commit to improving and don't get discouraged if it seems to be happening slowly or, or, you're, or you're really, really out of sync with the market right then. Uh, as long as you learn from it, the effort is not wasted and it's not lost. Uh, it's just like, I mean, athletes don't win every game. Uh, Baseball players don't hit every don't get a hit every at bat, and uh, as long as you're unless you're the Astros, you know, in 2017. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a Yankee. I'm a Yankee fan, so any system. listen, man, I'm a Yankee fan, so anytime I can get an Astros dig in, I will. But anyway, I'm sorry. I, I, no, I, I hear well, I'm a very, very long-suffering Pirates fan, so uh, I, I will take any dig at any other better team uh, as well. It makes sense for me. Yeah, and I guess especially as it pertains to. Um, Microcap, illiquid, dark companies. I think skepticism is the name of the game. Uh, you're going to find a lot of companies that really, really look great at first glance, but even in a, in a relatively inefficient market like like this market, most companies are trading at the valuation they're trading at for a good reason. If you find a company that's trading, it looks like it's trading at single-digit PE, has a good balance sheet and reasonably good management. It doesn't automatically make it a great investment. There's probably something that's causing the stock to trade at that level. If you do all your homework and you get really, really confident that it truly is just an overlooked opportunity, well, awesome. Maybe you did find one, but you have to do your homework. Uh, don't just assume that the stock looks cheap. It is cheap. There's, remember that you're not alone in this market. Hundreds of people have looked at the stock and they pass on it for whatever reason. And It's unlikely that you are so special that you found that you found that that gem and maybe you did now and then but 
most of the time, the market is reasonably efficient and is reasonably good at incorporating information. And it really takes a lot of work and effort and even experience to, to get confident that you've truly found something exceptional. All right. Now, before I let you go real quick, just want to make sure you are not a shareholder in any of the names mentioned. Uh, UPS, Frontier, CenturyLink. Um, I think it was a CenturyLink competitor to, uh, I think I heard Southstream or I couldn't hear it, but, uh, sure. and, and then Comcast, uh, Charter or Verizon. <laughs> <laughs> Good question. I think I own one share of UPS personally, so <laughs> probably counts. Uh, we own a, I own a little bit of Frontier debt, no shares though. Uh, otherwise, no, no shareholding in Comcast, Verizon, Windstream, or CenturyLink. Perfect. Yep. All right, Dave, we're at that point. So with that, where can my audience go and find more information about you, OTC Adventures, and Alluvio Capital? Yeah, absolutely. So I still write on otcadventures.com. That's uh, the blog I keep going. Uh, you know, try to write a couple times a month. If I can, great. If not, well, I'm doing other things. Uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash alluvialcapital. And just uh, alluvialcapital.com for information about our uh, investment management practices. Dave, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a lot of fun. And uh, I look forward to the next time we get to speak. Totally. Thanks for having me on. Great conversation. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning into the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Dave, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to Podbean and search Planet Microcap podcast or on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube and search Planet Microcap podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap podcast. We'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of stocknewsnow.com, the official microcap news source, and the Microcap Review Magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap podcast. Have a great week, everyone.